Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Humanizing Holiness. Are some commandments more important than others? It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, October 26, 2008. About a year ago, my daughter called me from high school to say that she needed a ride home. Someone stole my bike, she said. Much to our surprise, this petty case went to trial, and in the end, the thief was found guilty. The defense attorney tried to blame my daughter for not locking her bike, but that only incensed the judge. And so at the end of the trial, she spoke to my daughter and said, Megan, I don't want you to ever think that in any way this was your fault. A person should not have to worry about having their bike stolen just because they left it unlocked. Imagine a high school where people didn't steal bikes, or, in the case of my son, graphing calculators. Think of a Wall Street where investment bankers didn't create complex financial instruments that skim billions of dollars and wreck the economy. A community like that would be what the Bible calls holy. In other words, they would be places where people were whole and wholesome, where they treated each other like they wanted to be treated. <clears throat> a holy person or place stands in sharp contrast to what the book of Leviticus calls the unclean, detestable, or perverted behavior by which we defile ourselves and others. The language of Leviticus is vividly suggestive. Would you rather live, work, and play in a place that is quote-unquote clean or dirty, impure? To be holy, then, means that in some limited but genuine way, we human beings reflect the character of God himself. And so we read in Leviticus 19, verse 2, You shall be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. For the ancient Jews, this exhortation to holiness was codified in complex purity laws. The famous Ten Commandments were only the beginning. By one count, there are 613 misvot, or commandments, in the five books of Moses. The purity laws of Leviticus chapters 11 to 26 encompass nearly every aspect of being human. Birth, death, sex, gender, health, economics, agricultural, jurisprudence, social relations, hygiene, marriage, behavior, and even ethnicity, for Gentiles were automatically considered ritually impure. The Holiness Code in Leviticus, for example, specifies in minute detail clean and unclean foods, purity rituals after childbirth or a menstrual cycle, regulations for skin infections and contaminated clothing or furniture, prohibitions against contact with a human corpse or a dead animal, 
instructions about nocturnal emissions, laws regarding bodily discharges, guidelines about planting seeds and mating animals, observing the Sabbath, forsaking idols, tattoos, and even extensive decrees about sex, lots and lots and lots of sex. Leviticus 18, for example, codifies about 20 types of lawful, or as the case may be, unlawful sexual relations. Some of these ancient commands seem self-evident. We gladly follow them today, and we neglect them at our peril. Honor your parents. Take special care of the poor, the blind, the deaf, and the alien. Don't steal or lie. Don't have sex with your parent, your child, or an animal. Don't cheat your employee or don't cheat your customers. But side by side with these timeless truths are other commands that are lost to a different time and place. And we feel no compunction in ignoring them today. For example, don't mate different kinds of animals, don't plant your field with two kinds of seeds, or cut the hair at the sides of your head, don't wear garments made of two kinds of materials. And similarly, we rightly ignore at least some of the punishments for breaking these laws, like the death penalty for cursing your parents or adultery. Scholars debate just how much or how little ordinary first-century Jews concern themselves with maintaining ritual purity by obeying this holiness code in Leviticus. But the Pharisees, about whom we read so much in the Gospels, certainly did. And so, in the Gospel for this week, a Pharisee who was described as an expert in the law tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. 36. <clears throat> Maybe this was a trick question designed to trap Jesus. So, if he privileged one single commandment, didn't that mean he neglected others? How dare he imply that we can wink at some of God's laws? Or if he suggested that all the commandments were equally weighty, didn't that contradict common sense? Surely a tattoo, Leviticus 19.28, isn't as morally weighty as child sacrifice, Leviticus 18.21. On the other hand, maybe the expert was posing an honest inquiry. Something like, Lord, so many commands. How should we understand them all? Are some more important than others? Buried deep down in that Levitical holiness code was one single command. Leviticus 19 verse 18 that Jesus said was more important than the 611 other commands. Jesus responded that the most important commandment is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. <clears throat> 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's Deuteronomy 6.4. And then Jesus continued. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. There is no commandment greater than these, said Jesus. The questioner liked Jesus' answer and affirmed that these two commands were, quote, more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so, with that deft response, Jesus linked our love of God with our love of neighbor. You cannot separate the two, he said. To have one is to have the other, and to neglect one is to lose them both. This necessary connection between claiming to love God in demonstrating that we love our fellow human beings, became so deeply embedded in the early Christian traditions that all three Gospels contain a version of this story. The command to love our neighbor is repeated almost verbatim by Paul, by James, and most memorably by John in 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. <clears throat> a generation after those first believers the theologian Justin Martyr, who died in the year 165, summarized the appeal of holiness. Holiness as it was expressed in Christian community. Listen to Justin Martyr. Those who once delighted in fornication now embrace chastity alone. We who took most pleasure in accumulating wealth and property now share with everyone in need. We who hated and killed one another and would not associate with people of different tribes because of their different customs, now, since the coming of Christ, live familiarly with them and pray for our enemies. And a few decades later, Tertullian, who died in the year 220, wrote, Our care for the derelict and our active love have become our distinctive sign before the enemy. See, they say, how they love one another and how ready they are to die for each other. And so said Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 40, all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. And now for further reflection, consider the following five verses from the New Testament. Romans 13, 8 and 9. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. 
For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Galatians 5.14 The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. And finally, the famous words from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2, Without love, I am nothing. <clears throat> For books this week, I review Ron Hansen. The title is Exiles. New York, Farrer, Strauss, and Giraud, 2008, and in 27 pages. This is a work of fiction based on fact, writes novelist Ron Hansen. So here are the facts. On December 6, 1875, the passenger ship Deutschland ran aground on a sandbar in the mouth of the Thames River. Before its rescue the following day, 157 people died of exposure to the frigid waters and blizzard conditions. Among those who perished were five Franciscan nuns from Germany who were traveling to Missouri via New York City. The young Jesuit seminarian and later-to-be famous poet, Gerard Manley Hopkins, who died in 1889, was so moved by the tragedy that he memorialized the event in a 35-stanza poem called The Wreck of the Deutschland. And so, in this novel, in alternating chapters, Ron Hansen tells the stories of the nuns who died and the poet who commemorated them. Very little is known about the five nuns except that they were expelled from Germany because of Bismarck's anti-Catholic measures. They were exiles in the literal sense of the word, but also in the figurative sense of having left their homes and families for the cause of Christ. Like many exiles, they met a tragic end. Much more is known about Hopkins, the oldest of nine children, who, under the influence of the famous Cardinal John Henry Newman, converted to Catholicism in 1866. And as if this was not enough to embitter his parents, he even chose the Jesuits. Eleven years later, his mother and father still refused to attend his ordination to the priesthood. Hopkins was not only exiled by his parents, but also by the larger Anglican world at Oxford University. An eccentric and overscrupulous man plagued by black moods, Hopkins was also alienated from his own self. He abandoned poetry to pursue the priesthood and even burned much of his early verse. The secular pursuit of poetry, he thought, was no match for the spiritual vocation of the priesthood. Or was it? 
Hopkins remained deeply conflicted about this throughout his life. Close to his death, he made his confession, which included his regret for, quote, shutting off the grace of inspiration by not paying enough attention to his poetic gift, end quote. Hopkins was further exiled when he was sent by the Jesuits to Ireland, and also because of his highly experimental and complicated poetic style called sprung rhythm, which was little understood or appreciated by close friends, readers, and colleagues. The famous shipwreck of the Deutschland seemed to provoke Hopkins to a time of poetic creativity after a period of silence. But otherwise, these are two stories that proceed along parallel tracks that in my mind don't intersect, except for the broader themes of exile and fate. Hopkins was left to brood over the tragic fate of the five nuns, and also over his own life, which as he put it one time was kicked around like, quote, fortunes football, end quote. Ultimately, Hopkins, the nuns, and all of us are exiles, as Ron Hansen writes, quote, not from Germany, not from Europe, but from paradise, from heaven. Ron Hansen, Exiles. For film this week, I review the documentary called Man on Wire from 2008. This BBC documentary tells the story of how on August the 4th, 1974, Philippe Petit danced, sat, knelt, and lay down on a tightrope that was strung between the two towers of the World Trade Center. His stunt lasted 45 minutes, during which time he traversed that cable eight times. Since we know when the film begins, where it will end, and what it's about, the plot consists of retelling the secret logistics, the dumb luck, and extraordinary skill of the team that Petit assembled. The directors incorporated archival footage, still photos, reenactments, and lengthy interviews with the team members today. As is fitting, Petit himself narrates most of his own remarkable story. Why did he do it? That, he says, is a quintessentially American question. Bravery and skill, yes, but also joy and beauty. And how did they secure the 450 pound cable 200 feet between the two towers? Watch this fascinating film, which is based upon Petit's book, To Reach the Clouds, from 2002. Man on Wire, from 2008. And finally, for poetry, in keeping with the theme, Loving God Through Loving Our Neighbor, 
we've posted the so-called Peace Prayer of St. Francis. St. Francis lived from 1182 to 1226. In all the poem is called the Peace Prayer of St. Francis, we actually don't know the author of the prayer. And it was not until the 1920s that it was even ascribed to St. Francis. By one account, the prayer was found in 1915 in Normandy, written on the back of a card of St. Francis. But it certainly emanates his longing to be an instrument of God's peace. The Peace Prayer of St. Francis Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is error, truth. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may no, not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in self-forgetting that we find and it is in dying to ourselves that we are born to eternal life. The Peace Prayer of St. Francis Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 26, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.